the weekend, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and it's good, as Julie's reminded me this morning, to be in a house of mourning at certain times, and it's good to be mindful and to remember the loss and the pain and the hurt that this world brings, and certainly 9-11 and the many victims and the many families who were affected by it, they are a reminder to us that we live in a wicked, wicked, and dark World that is filled with great depravity and the depravity of men knows no end. And it's a world that is in desperate, desperate need of a Savior and a Lord who can forgive us of our sins and remake us anew, an eternal King. And that King, of course, is the one who we sang about this morning and who we will hear about through the Gospel of Matthew. And as I begin and as we get back into the Gospel of Matthew, I want to echo some of the words that our elder Peter said this morning. A simple question to you all. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who Jesus is? Well, we're Americans. We're conservative evangelicals. We're Christians. Of course we know who Jesus is. And according to a 2020 Ligonier survey, R.C. Sproul's organization that did a survey that was really cited everywhere, Newsweek, Christianity Today, any number of different both Christian and non-Christian journals. In that survey, um, they surveyed around 6,000, 6,500 people Uh, The result of that survey showed that 52% of U.S. adults say that Jesus was a great teacher, but nothing more. No surprise there, right? 30% of American evangelicals, almost one-third of conservative evangelicals, agreed with that statement. That Jesus was a great teacher, but nothing more. But here's where it gets interesting. 65%, the majority of American evangelicals, affirmed that Jesus was the first and greatest created being by God. Jesus was the first and greatest created being by God. 65% of American evangelicals. Now, I know that sounds good, but if you think about that, that is affirming... Uh, the words and beliefs of a bishop named Arius, who was condemned as a heretic. It's consistent with Gnosticism, and it's in agreement with the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness, who Peter referenced, where Christ and Jesus is not God. He is a created being. He's just a better created being than you or I, a created being. 65% of American evangelicals and 44% who affirmed that Jesus is God, said that because Jesus is both God and man, He sinned just like you and I. And He sinned in His humanity, not His deity. I mean, Peter was right this morning. If we're not right about Jesus, we're not right about our salvation, we're not right about the gospel... It's way off. And the conclusion that not just the Ligonier survey, but even some of the secular media 
who picked up on this and featured this survey demonstrated that American evangelicals are confused and divided about who Jesus is. Raised in church, just like you and I. Sing the hymns, just like you and I. And so it's worth asking that question. Do you know who Jesus is? And before you answer, think very, very carefully. And this morning, as we return to Matthew's Gospel... It's a gospel where Matthew, a first century Jewish disciple and apostle of Jesus, challenges us with that very same question. It's a question that ultimately comes from Jesus himself. In Matthew 16, 15, Jesus says first to his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? A reference to him. And then he goes and says, but who do you say that I am? And that comes at a pivotal point in Matthew's Gospel. And really, that's what Matthew's Gospel is all about. And as we go back to those very first words of Matthew's Gospel, see them up in Greek there. Biblos Genesis, or Biblos Genesis Jesu Christu. The book of the genealogy, or Genesis of Jesus Christ. The son of Abraham, the son of David. Matthew throws down a double-edged sword. And the first edge of that sword that he puts before us is that his gospel, with those words, his gospel is nothing less than the authoritative, inspired word of God. On par, equivalent with the book of Genesis, and in fact the Genesis of the New Testament. No small claim. And the second edge of the sword he throws down with those words is this, if you don't know who Jesus is, according to God's word, not according to your experience, not according to your expectations, not according to your opinions, if you don't know who Jesus is according to God's word, like so many American evangelicals and so many Christian pastors, you don't know who Jesus is. And this is what Matthew's Gospel, brothers and sisters, is all about. It's who Jesus is, not according to us, but according to God's Word. Not according to the commentaries, not according to the scholars, not according to the experts, but according to God's Word. And as we come to Matthew 1, 2 through 17 this morning, the genealogy or family tree of Jesus, Matthew continues to show us who Jesus is according to God's Word. Very specifically, Matthew shows us who Jesus is through the genealogy and family tree of God's Word, of Jesus. And it's a genealogy and family tree that begins in Genesis. And it's with this genealogy or family tree that Matthew's doing something much more than just proving to Jews that Jesus is the rightful and legal heir to David's throne. Can I have my next slide, please, AV team? Okay, here's the big idea for Matthew 1, verses 2 through 17, and this lengthy family tree that's filled with many names. Matthew's showing us through this genealogy. Genealogies are a little bit like codes, okay? But they're codes that everybody knows how to read if you're part of the family. Matthew's showing us through this genealogy that the entirety of God's Word... The entirety of God's Word 
leads us to Jesus. Not as a great teacher, not as a rabbi, not as a good man. The entirety of God's word leads us to Jesus as the Christ, the new and eternal king of God's promise. Jesus might not be in every word or verse, but in its entirety, that's where the entirety of God's Word points us to. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Colossians says, Everything was created through Him and is for Him. And in Him all things hold together. And the author of Hebrews says, He is the heir of all things. It's all about Jesus. But not Jesus as your buddy or your homeboy or your friend, though He may play that role in mercy and grace. But Jesus is the new and eternal King of God's promise. And the second point that Matthew makes is that Jesus' family tree is in fact... Your family tree, if, and this is a big if, if you are indeed a disciple of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons why this church is committed to making disciples. And those are the two big truths, brothers and sisters, that we're going to try and unpack this morning. And I believe they summarize Matthew's intent in going through this very lengthy genealogy that takes around 16 or 17 verses. Now, I have a confession to make up front to you. From childhood onwards, my mom, bless her heart and soul, she would have us read through scripture after dinner time. And as we would get to the genealogies, we would smirk or laugh or mispronounce the names or roll our eyes. Blasphemy. Yes. God saved the blasphemer, okay? And quite frankly, I have a confession to make. Even in my adult age, as I would do my devotions and we would come to these lists of hard-to-pronounce names... The strong temptation in my heart was to just skip over them. Okay? And I can tell you that's certainly part of my DNA. And in part, it's because at first glance, as you look at these genealogies or these family trees, you're looking at a list of hard-to-pronounce names that don't seem particularly relevant. But brothers and sisters, genealogies and family trees become very exciting and very important when we discover that we're related to the people in that family tree. And when we suddenly discover that their story is our story and what's being unfolded in that family tree is the way in which we are connected to these people. Every genealogy and family tree tells a story. And every genealogy and family tree shows how each of our lives is part of a story that is far bigger than ourselves. And in scripture, brothers and sisters, genealogies show us how God's word works in and through the lives of his people over generations, one life at a time. God's word works in and through the lives of his people one life at a time in order to fulfill his promises. Most importantly, his promise of a new and eternal king for his people. And this is what Jesus' genealogy is all about. 
you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And yes, we're going to read through this. This is a broccoli moment. It's hard to digest, but it's good for you. Okay? Matthew 1.1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Zalmon, and Zalmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Oved by Ruth, and Oved the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And David was the father of Solomon, I'm sorry I added that, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Avijah, and Avijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Aviud. And Aviud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon. Fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, or to the Christ, fourteen generations. You did it. Okay? If you spend any time with Jewish people, and even in this day and age, you'll know that genealogies are sacred. I had a medical student who I worked with, and the trouble... And the burden of her heart was she was dating a young man whose last name was Kohane or Cohen. And they could draw their lineages all the way back to the Kohanes or the priests in the temple. And because she was a Russian Jew and she didn't have or was aware of or had lost her lineage. And most of the archives got burned in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed the family of her boyfriend felt she was not fit because she did not have a genealogy that matched the genealogy of the priests. Now, that's recent. 
But for God's people and God's people in the ancient Near East, the genealogies in Scripture, what we just read, were considered to be sacred and holy. So holy that official copies were guarded in the archives of the holiest place on earth. They were kept in the temple of the Lord. Why did they do that? It's a couple of reasons. First, the genealogies were a foundational part of God's Word. This is God's Word, inspired from the mouth of God. But from the mouth of God, these genealogies provided living proof of who God's people are. It's about membership, brothers and sisters. And these genealogies showed by names and names that people knew, tracing from names in the scripture all the way to names of your relatives. It provided living proof of what connects people to God and what connects them to one another. And what sets them apart as the people of God. And it's worth asking, brothers and sisters, as Christians, what is it that connects us to God? What is it that connects us to one another? What is it that sets us apart on any given Sunday? One of my professors used to remind us that Sunday was the most segregated day of the week in America. What is it that connects us with one another? What is it that connects us with God? And what is it that sets us apart? Is it because we're Asian? Is it because we worship in a particular way or in a particular denomination or a particular type of church? Well, for the Jews, the genealogies of God's Word showed that what bound them together... First with God and then with one another. What set them apart, what made them God's people, was not their work or achievements or their preferences. What bound them together and set them apart, connected them to God and one another, were the promises of God. I'm going to say that again. What bound them together, what bound them to God, What set them apart as different from the rest of the world were the promises of God. That brings us to our first point this morning. Jesus' genealogy shows how God's people are the children of God's promise. Jesus' genealogy shows how God's people are the children of God's promise. Brothers and sisters, do you think of yourself when you say that you are a Christian? Is the first thing that comes to mind that you are a child of God's promise. When we speak to our children and they are struggling and someone is making fun of them because they look different or because they do or do not wear a mask, do we remind them You are a child of God's promise if you know Jesus as your Savior. If. Do we tell them that they will have a choice? That they can be known in this life for their works, their education, their career, or even the church they go to. Or by faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they can be known as a child of God's promise. 
Well, this is what Matthew was showing us in verses 1 through 17 and all those names we read. Because in verse 1, from the very beginning, he shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of three foundational promises of God's Word. And the first promise is God's promise to His people of a new king who will redeem God's people from their sin and who will bring them out of exile and bring them back to God. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And many of the promises of redemption and of a Messiah you will find start to become very frequent in the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the prophets as they speak to and address the Jews who are in exile or who are about to go into exile because they've turned their backs and they no longer believe in the God who brought them together and they no longer believe in His promises. Jesus the Christ, the second promise, God's promise to David of an eternal throne and kingdom. Jesus, the Son of God. And that comes from 2 Samuel 7. And the third promise, God's promise to Abraham. That from Abraham, who at that time was unable to have children, from Abraham a great nation, a great name, and a great blessing to all the families would come. Jesus, the son of Abraham, Genesis 12 through 17. And it's these three promises that Matthew outlines right from the beginning that connect all of God's people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they lead God's people to Jesus as the new king of God's promise. And in verses 2 through 17, through Jesus' genealogy, much of what has been taken from Genesis 46, Ruth 4, 1 Chronicles 1 through 3, Matthew shows us, and he's showing those first century Jewish believers, he's showing us how God's promise connects God's people to Jesus, and he shows how God's promises connect His people to Jesus, one life, one name, one generation at a time. And he does this by organizing the people and the genealogy of Jesus into three groups of 14. Have a look at verse 17. This is Matthew's summary. He begins with the promises of God and then he summarizes at the end verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon or the exile, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ... 14 generations. Now, what's troubled many people is if you count the names in the Old Testament genealogies. If you go to Ruth chapter 4, if you go to 1 Chronicles 1 through 3, what's troubled many people is that there's more than 14 names from David to the exile, and there's more than 14 names from the exile to Jesus. And there are many theories why Matthew organizes Jesus' genealogy into three sets of 14. And many modern scholars suggest that Matthew is fudging the data, and he's just playing fast and loose. Matthew has a point that he wants to make. He wants to show that Jesus is the descendant of David, which would be a big deal for the Jews, and so he's just doing it using numbers that are important to Jews. In other words, our Bible is filled with errors. And I raise this for you, brothers and sisters, because many of you may feel that this is um, the nerd portion, okay? 
of the Sunday sermon. But I grew up in churches that never addressed these things. And they talked about inerrancy and that the Bible is truth. And then you end up in college and you read through from very convincing men who claim to be biblical scholars. And they're pointing out all these inconsistencies. And they say, see, like Bart Ehrman or others, basically... The fact that Jesus is God is just a fabrication by a Christian church that needed to believe that in order to carry on. Manipulative, self-serving, redacting, editing, and putting it together and packaging a message. And if you followed um, any number of folks who have fallen from their pastorate, most recently, uh, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. These are, these are some of the things that they struggle with and allude to when they walk away from their faith. Of course, faith comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from academia. Academia never saved anyone. And it's not that we belittle academia. You do need to do due diligence. Academia in service of faith can be a great thing. Academia instead of faith is a terrible, terrible thing. If you listen very carefully to Matthew and you consider that his authority is the word of God, especially the Old Testament scriptures, and that he's showing us contextually who Jesus is according to God's word, you will see that along with the other Old Testament and New Testament authors, Matthew does not use the word generation in the way we typically do. For us... Generation, that word, refers to people who are born or living at the same time. So we talk about millennials. We talk about Gen Xers. We talk about baby boomers. And even more so, when we think of generations, we think of ourselves as the frame of reference. And we're talking about, typically, people say, biologically, one lifetime. But in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and in Hebrew and Greek, the word generation describes a group, a stage, or a period in history that shares something in common. A group, a stage, a period in history that shares something in common. And in Scripture, typically, a generation is a turning point in God's story and plan for His people. And turning points can cover many lifetimes. So we see Jesus in Matthew 17, 17 saying, O faithless and twisted generation. He's talking about a group of people whose lives will span children, grandparents, people more than one lifetime. And what characterizes these people is that they are a faithless and twisted group of people. And they fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah of a period in time where people's hearts will be hardened even though God is doing miracles and is right in front of them. Colossians 1.26 The Apostle Paul refers to the gospel as the mystery hidden for ages and generations. The mystery hidden for ages and generations. And in scripture, generations frequently refers to an age or a stage or a turning point in God's plan. And it's not measured by our lifetime or our timetables. It's measured by the promises and timetable of God's word. 
And brothers and sisters, as you read through the scriptures and you see the timelines, I think you will find that helpful, especially in many cases where people say, see, there's an error there. As opposed to, see, are you looking at it through the eyes of God and His promises and His timetable? Or are you simply reducing God into the way certain men think in very small circles? Very clearly, Matthew is working with God's promises and His timeline. And Matthew is showing how Jesus genealogy and the lives of God's people are built around the promises of God. And from verse 1 through 17, Matthew shows us how God fulfills His promise to Abraham, His promise to David, and His promise of a Messiah through three successive stages in the history of God's people. One name, one life, one generation at a time. And all of them lead to Jesus. And the golden threads that connect each life, each name, each generation of God's people are the promises of God spoken of repeatedly in the Old Testament and filled in the person and life of Jesus of Nazareth. And through Jesus' genealogy, what Matthew's showing us is that the God of the Bible does not lie. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. But he keeps it on his terms and his timeline, not ours. And he's showing us the God of the Bible does not make mistakes. He is faithful to his word, which is sovereignly at work in the lives of his people, whether they are aware of it. Or not. And of course you go to Hebrews and he talks about faith. And he talks about the heroes of faith. And he talks about how the heroes of faith, many of them did not see the fulfillment of the promise God gave them. And yet they obeyed. Why? Because their faith was not in their circumstances or what they could see or their preferences or what they thought was right. Their faith was in the God who had given them the promise. Children of the promise. It's God's promises, brothers and sisters, that connect and order and lead God's people. And that raises the question, what is it that connects and orders and leads our lives, our marriages, And our families. What gives us meaning and purpose? Well for many of us brothers and sisters. It's our education. Our careers. And our ministry and our work. Those are the things that order our lives. Those are the things that make the decision. Of where we go. What we do. Where our families go. Where we live. What we want. And what we do. The American dream. Those are the things that typically guide our lives. And order our lives. What we want and what we do. And when what we want and what we do diverges with someone else, we're no longer connected, we're divided, and we're in a different realm. Well, the testimony of the genealogy of Jesus is that regardless of race, regardless of color of skin, regardless of gender, regardless of education, regardless of experience or opinion, what connects God's people to God and to one another are the promises of His Word. 
And this is because, brothers and sisters, God's people are the children of His promise. Very specifically, His promise of a new kingdom, a promise of a new king who will save His people from their sin. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Thank you, AV team. God's promises lead God's people to repentance and redemption by faith in Him. God's promises lead God's people to repentance and redemption by faith in Him. Now we live in America, and America, as Americans, there are many wonderful things about Americans. I love America. But as American Christians, we have to admit, we are the kings of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is our generation and time, and we've imported that around the world. And the prosperity gospel is about faith in God's promises as a ticket to a better life. A better life right now. A bigger home, better clothes, better car, better church. All of those things. It's all about, if you hear the... Many of the pastors on TV, it's all about claiming those promises so that you can overcome and have victory in your job, your marriage, and all of those other places. But as you walk through the stories of those lives in Jesus' genealogy, you see that God's promises lead elsewhere, brothers and sisters. I'm sorry, I have to tell you, it doesn't lead to your best life now doesn't lead to overcoming when your employer is being difficult and getting the promotion. It leads God's people to the cross. That's where, brothers and sisters, God's promises lead. That's where they lead if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and King. It also leads to a resurrection. It also will lead to a glorified body, but that is coming later as part of God's time in a new age, not this age. And this is what Matthew shows us through the genealogy of Jesus. As you read the Old Testament, As you read the Old Testament, what you'll see is Old Testament authors tend to repeat themselves. And it's not by accident. I'll get that question many times in our home. Why do they say the same things over and over again? Julie, why do you ask that question? Well, it's not by accident. They repeat themselves intentionally. Genesis 1, God saw that it was good. And after each day... It says again and again, God saw that it was good. And what these repetitions of God's word do intentionally is they provide a divine rhythm, a divine structure, and a divine order to the story, to the message, and to the lives of God's people. Brothers and sisters, our lives, our homes, our families were meant to be ordered by the promises and the word of God, not by the world And everything that goes on in the world. It's a different rhythm. A different order. It's an order that God has given through His Word. That's meant to protect you. And draw you close to Him and one another. But when there's a break in the pattern. Or the repetition. 
It's a signal that God is intervening and he's stepping in to do something special. And as you read the authors, both Old Testament and New Testament, you're going to see that. They're going to repeat and they're going to do a pattern over and over again and there's going to be a break. And when they do that break, they're getting your attention and saying, okay, there's a turning point here. God is stepping in to do something special and important. And that's why at the end of day six... God says it was not just good, very good. He breaks the pattern. And of course, that's after the creation of the first man and woman. And day seven, he doesn't talk about things in the same way. Why? Because day seven is a day that's set apart for the Lord, a day of Sabbath rest. So we come to the genealogy of Jesus in verse 2 through 17. There's very obviously a repetitious pattern that Matthew does. He's a Hebrew writing for the Hebrews in the Hebrew dialect. And that repetition is a father, okay, and a son. Abraham, father of Isaac. Isaac, father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And he goes down, as we heard, right, over and over again. Very repetitious, very unexciting. Okay. What's worth noticing in verse 3 and verse 5 and verse 6? The pattern is broken intentionally and conspicuously. What breaks the pattern? It's interrupted and the pattern's broken by four women. Men, this is exegesis 101. When the ladies appear, you need to pay attention. Let me hear you say that. When the ladies appear, you need to pay attention. And that's true in the scriptures. You go through the scriptures. When the ladies appear, you need to pay attention. God is up to something. He's not making them pastors. He's not making them heads of the household. But they play a very special role. It's a red alert. Especially in genealogies where the legal head and the representative of a family from Genesis onwards is always a man. In traditional Jewish genealogies, women do not appear. When the women appear, it is exceptional. And the four women who are listed, the names here are exceptional. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, also known in other scriptures as Bathsheba. And they are not exceptional because of their education, their intelligence, or even their beauty, though some were beautiful. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. Uriah, to whom Bathsheba was married, was a Hittite. In the Old Covenant, all of those nations were idolatrous and unclean and their citizens were barred from worship and barred from the ecclesia, the assembly of God's people. You couldn't come in if you were a Canaanite, a Moabite, or if you came from one of those pagan nations. Three of these women... were known for their promiscuous and sinful past. All four of the women, according to the law of Moses, were unclean. And yet, not only are they listed among God's people and the royal genealogy of God's kings, Matthew literally says, 
by or from Tamar, by or from Rahab, by or from Ruth, by or from the wife of Uriah, and then list the names. By or from these women come the kings and the people of God's promise. And as you read their stories, you will see that what makes these women exceptional and worth mentioning is not their past. It's what God has done in their lives. It is their faith in God's promises that leads them to repentance and redemption and adoption into God's family. It's God's promises that gives them a completely new life in the family of God. It's God's promises that bring them in and make them daughters of God's promises and the mothers of God's king, kings. Brothers and sisters, this is the DNA of the gospel. It's the DNA of the gospel. And then by contrast, in verse 6 through 11, the genealogy from King David to the exile, and then in verse 12 through 16, from the exile to Joseph. Jesus' genealogy gives a list of the names of men. And they're not like the names of the women. These are men who are born with every privilege and blessing in the world, both spiritual and material. Men who were born as kings, men who were born into families of great wealth and power, men who were given the best religious education, men who were raised and had the privilege of having a privileged place in the temple, front row for kings, not priests, okay? They couldn't go to certain places or make sacrifices, but nonetheless... The best that money had to offer. The best that the temple and Judaism had to offer. And yet because of their lack of faith in the promises of God. You read the stories of those men. Men like Rehoboam. Men like Manasseh. Even men like Hezekiah. And sadly Josiah at the end. Because of their lack of faith in the promises of God, their past meant nothing. And their lives and families and stories become a downward spiral of idolatry and sin that results in exile, enslavement, and obscurity, just as God had promised. And by the end, King David's heir, Joseph, is a carpenter in Nazareth rather than a king. In Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, our faith in the promises of God will affect our families. It will not save them, but it will affect them. And yet the testimony of Jesus' genealogy, as you go to the end, is that our sin and our parents' sin... And this is very freeing, brothers and sisters. Our sin and our parents' sin is not greater than... The promises of God and the salvation of God. Our sin and our parents' sin is not greater than the promises of God and the salvation of God. And that's what Matthew's showing us in this genealogy. Because even though these 
Many leaders lead their families and people into sin. God's promises continue in and through them. Our parents, brothers and sisters, are not an excuse for our walk in the faith, how we live and how we love, how we worship and what we do. God shows us that even from such fallen and broken sinners, God is able to miraculously raise up a new king, a son of David, unlike all the other sons and kings of David, the shoot of Jesse, anointed by God, the Christ who will lead His people back to the promises of God, to the repentance and redemption of the cross, and to a new life in Him. This brings us to our final point for this morning. Could I have my next slide? Thank you. God's word leads God's people to Jesus as the new and eternal king of God's promise. God's word leads God's people to Jesus as the new and eternal king of God's promise. Brothers and sisters, I don't care how much of the Bible you know. I don't. I don't care if you could teach a seminary class. And get a PhD in Old Testament Hebrew. If your encounter with the word does not lead you to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If your encounter with the word of God does not lead you to repentance and faith in him. As the only name by which you can be saved. That knowledge of God's word is more of a liability than anything else. God's word leads God's people to Jesus as the new and eternal king of God's promise. And this is where the genealogy of God's people in Matthew 1 leads us. It leads us to Jesus, not as an exceptional teacher, not even as a good king like King David. In verse 16, if you'll look closely, you'll see another major break in the genealogy pattern. And it's a cue that God is doing something big and new. Verse 16 does not say like all the genealogies before, it doesn't say Joseph was the father of Jesus. Or in the Greek, Joseph begat Jesus. It doesn't say that. Verse 16 says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom or from whom Jesus was born. Man, exegesis 101, what? When the ladies appear, you better pay attention. Right? Matthew's no joke. He doesn't play fast and loose. He plays really meticulous attention to detail. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's completely consistent with the authors of Scripture. Because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Mary appears because God is about to do something exceptional in this genealogy. And with these words, Matthew shows us that Jesus... Though he is the legal heir to King David's throne and promise through Joseph, Joseph is not his father. Joseph is not his biological father. And he shows us that Jesus' arrival is different and new from all the other kings. All the other kings in David's line came biologically directly from the father before them. Jesus doesn't come through Joseph. He's born through Mary. And of course, this is a lead up to our next section. But Jesus, His Father is in heaven. 
our Father who is in heaven. His Father is a heavenly Father. He is from a heavenly family. God has sent His Son, who is different and new from all the other kings. And the reason He has sent His Son is because the old kings couldn't get it done. He sent His Son to do what no king of David could ever do, which is fulfill God's promise, lead God's people by faith back to God, and to go to the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is who Jesus is according to God's Word. And there's one more point that's worth noting. If you count the names from the exile to Jesus, there are only 13 names. Now once again, what do the scholars, many of the scholars say? Well, you know Matthew, even though he was a tax collector and he's meticulous with numbers, he's a little sloppy here, or he's playing fast and loose, or he makes mistakes, or this is an error. Matthew is missing a generation. Or is he? Well, just read the rest of Matthew's gospel and you will see who the 14th generation is. Because each generation, the king begets a next generation. Jesus is number 13 in the list. Who's the 14th generation? Well, the rest of Matthew's gospel is not only about Jesus, but the disciples and the church. And Matthew's gospel ends with the great commission. All authority and power has been given unto me. Go into all the world or all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Adoption into the family of God. And teach them to observe everything that I have commanded, and lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, the disciples in the church are the 14th generation, I believe. They are the family of God. They are the next generation of God's people. And if you're a disciple, who God has revealed to you, who Jesus is according to His Word, not a teacher or a good person, but in fact, the Son of God, true God, true man. This is your family tree. Have you come from a troubled family? Have you been disappointed and had parents who have sinned or, or a past that's rough? Have you come from a good family? If you belong to Jesus, brothers and sisters, and I've shared this with one brother where he expressed discouragement about his marriage and his family, I said, listen, this is who you are. I want to close with you over the next minute with two illustrations, brothers and sisters. During my time at a celebrated church, a pastor asked me to take care of a woman. And the reason he asked and what would typically happen is because I was a physician at the time, anybody who was on medications tended to come my way. And what came was a statement, well, this lady is hearing voices. And she thinks 
all manner of terrible things and she's on all these different medications. We don't know what's going on and we don't know what to do with her. Would you take care of her? And it was a privilege and a blessing that I was given. And as I met with this lady, and of course I did go through all her medications, and yes, some of them did affect the brain. But as we shared and dealt with the many things that tormented her, including many physical ailments, and her body was breaking down, I thought of Psalm 32, and I thought of 1 John 1.9, and I asked her, You know, are there things in your past that have hurt you? Or are there things in your past that are burdens? Because the Lord talks about in Psalm 32 that if we conceal our sins, our bodies can break down. But God offers forgiveness and He has sent the King to die on the cross in our place who is capable and able to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And it was interesting as we spoke, she shared that in fact, and she had quite frankly a terrible family and terrible men in her life. I suspect there was a history of abuse. And in fact, her family and men in her life had bullied her into doing things that were both very destructive and very sinful. And those were things that she carried with her for years. And I was able to, by God's grace, read through Psalm 32 and 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And the opportunity, because God had sent not a good teacher, but His very own Son, to die for our sins, that he could pay that debt, she could be forgiven. And as a child of God who believed in Christ, she no longer needed to carry those burdens or be labeled or be bound to her past. And then the lady who mentored her, who was like, I don't know what to do with this. I said, but can you sit with her and go through Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God? And can you show her that you can trust God and you can trust His promises for every aspect of your life? Now, brothers and sisters, she still struggled physically. But God continued to do a work in her life. A burden was lifted. There was a smile on her face when I would see her at church, which I didn't see before. She began to see and know who Jesus is according to His Word. And quite frankly, though I love many of the pastors who ministered to her, I don't think they saw for a minute or a moment that Jesus was greater than the medications she was on. I'm not saying get rid of the medications. I'm not saying that they didn't play an influence. But the gospel makes you sufficient, brothers and sisters, because it is the power of God for salvation to minister to all men. The second illustration and last one I'll give you was a man at Grace Community Church. His brother had committed suicide... 9-11 happened. 
He was a California Highway Patrol officer. He was distraught, anxious, and depressed after 9-11 and the suicide of his brother. So he called his mother. And his mother said, why don't you go to Grace Community Church? And he went to Grace Community Church. He heard the word of God and he got saved. And I say that because I got to meet him after. And God was gracious to me because I was someone who, quite frankly, hated white police officers. That's my sin, brothers and sisters. My experience with white police officers had not been encouraging. And the Lord put us together in a ministry. He gave me a brother who I love dearly. And to see that what brought these three people together, this woman with a terrible past, this white police officer, Mark Chen, what is it that bound us together, brothers and sisters? wasn't the color of our skin. It wasn't our preferences. It wasn't our style of worship. It was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was the power of the gospel and it's the promises of God that set people apart and prepare them for the King. So, let me ask you, do you know who Jesus is? Every one of your lives tells a story. Every one of your lives is part of a story far greater than you. Is it the story of Jesus according to God's word? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you came so that we might no longer be bound by our sin and our past. But instead, Lord Jesus, that we might be the children of your promise. In your name we pray. Amen.